Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. Today's guest is Richard Seymour, a London-based writer and broadcaster who is here to talk about his book, The Twittering Machine. Uh, Richard, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so to start, uh, I would uh, love to know, as, as uh, our listeners would, um, a little bit more about your um, kind of professional and educational background, uh, and perhaps what inspired you to um, to write this book specifically. Well, I mean, professionally, I've been a writer since uh, around uh, 2006, uh, when I began work on my first book, which was a history of liberal imperialism. Um, as you can imagine, uh, going back to uh, Locke, John Stuart Mill, you know, justifications for colonialism on liberal grounds. Um, and this was uh, pre- precipitated by uh, the fact that uh, in the context of the occupation of Iraq and uh, all the calamities that uh, occurred around that, that there was quite a sizable contingent, perhaps not the majority, but a contingent of liberal opinion that was in favour of what was taking place. So I, I tried to um, develop an archaeology of this kind of thought. Um, and uh, since then, mostly have written uh, straightforwardly political books. Uh, the last one was about Corbyn and uh, his leadership of the Labour Party, which was uh, quite unprecedented, uh, never in its history as it had um, a, a radical socialist as its leader. Um, so I wrote a book about that. But this uh, was prompted by uh, something else, something a bit more personal. Um, and... Uh, it's the point where politics and the personal um, are very clearly um, uh, intersecting. Um, And that is uh, simply that um, I, like so many others, um, realized that I was probably addicted to this machinery, um, whatever we mean by addiction, and that it wasn't bringing out necessarily the best in me at all times. In fact, it was uh, causing quite a lot of anxiety So I was clearly uh, addicted to this machinery, whatever we mean by addiction. Uh, There's something quite strange about the idea that one can be addicted to technology and to writing, particularly given that we're used to the idea of addiction as something chemical that happens in the brain when you absorb a substance like alcohol or nicotine or an opiate, for example. I also noticed that it probably wasn't bringing out the best in me in terms of Uh, my online interactions, and also in terms of my writing. Um, And I think perhaps uh, just as importantly, it was leaving me quite anxious and sometimes after long periods of anxiety, quite depressed. And I thought this was uh, interesting because it seemed to be related somehow, mysteriously, to the ways in which... um, People become politicized on the internet. You know, we've seen a lot of talk about so-called fake news, conspiracy theories. We've seen a lot of talk about far-right groups building their influence on the internet. And not just um, the sort of what you might call the white far-right, but um, jihadists, uh, the Islamic State and so on, uh, building up their um, audience and their recruitment base through these technologies. And I wondered, is this just... Is this just because anybody could make use of this technology to the same effect and it just so happens that they're better at it? Or is there something in the logic, in the grammar of this technology, in the way that it shapes our lives, uh, that makes us more amenable to these forms of politicization? All sorts of questions like that just bubbling away, and I had to write the book. Um, And apart from that, of course, um, you know, I've been a writer... Uh, I was also, um, I suppose I could say, an academic of sorts in that uh, I was a student and then I uh, started taking a PhD um, at the London School of Economics, finished that in 2015 and was a teacher for a while. Um, But now I'm uh, completely uh, absorbed in professional writing. Okay. And do you consider this book political? Yes, but not in the way that uh, I'm used to, and probably not in the way that most people are used to. Generally speaking, a political book will approach you in, I suppose, a polemical way, in that uh, a book will try to um, 
try to convince you of something. It'll start off with a series of propositions. And so in that situation, the writer is someone who knows what they're talking about, has delved into history, has um, assembled the evidence, and merely has to, with enough skill and elegance, present the data and allow you to reach the conclusions that they want you to reach. Um, this is quite different because all I have here um, is a series of questions. I should say, first of all, I never in my life thought that I would want to write a book about technology. I'm not a technophile, um, and this is not the axis of my interest. Nonetheless, um, since it's something that pervades all our lives and we all use it, uh, we have to have some interest in the subject. Um, but uh, what I was more interested in was the way in which technology is social. Um, a tool is always social. It's always a medium of a relationship, either between a person and their lived environment or uh, between one person and another. Um, so that um, essentially, when we talk about technology, we are, in a way, talking about politics already, just without knowing it. So I thought um, that it would, it would be worthwhile uh, bringing that to the fore. I should also say that the book is um, probably the first in which I have overtly um, organized it as a psychoanalytic investigation. I became interested in uh, psychoanalytic language um, and ways of posing questions a few years ago, um, partly because I underwent my own analysis. Um, and this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to explore that at book length. Um, and I was very glad for the opportunity to do so. Um, and it has a really... <sighs> interesting title uh, that comes from Paul Klee's painting. Can you talk about that and what inspired you um, and kind of how you use that title uh, throughout your book? Well, I mean, I was very lucky to come across this um, very vivid metaphor. I mean, of course, in the painting, what you see is a row of stick figure birds and they're clutching an axle, which is turned by a crank. And these birds, you know, they're squawking discordantly um, but they are sitting above uh, a reddened pit. And so the Museum of Modern Art puts it, the birds function as bait to lure victims to the pit over which the machine hovers. Somehow, uh, this twittering has become uh, a lure for the purpose of human damnation. So I thought that was um, a vivid enough metaphor to describe what I was getting at. And although. Um, very clearly, that Im indicates that what I'm talking about is a horror story in a way. Uh, and that's been the implication of a lot of uh, what's called tech-lash literature. A lot of the um, stuff that's critical of social media um, is focused on the idea that it brings a unique kind of horror to our lives. Um, I want to make it clear that um, we can't go down the road of simply scapegoating the technology. If technology is social, then the problems that they perhaps exacerbate or potentiate probably are social as well. And we need to look at ourselves um, and we need to look at the horror that is within us. Um, so that's the starting point. The Twittering machine then is not uh, clearly um, a, a sort of mechanical apparatus in a simple way, um, but it is a machinery and it's a machinery of writing. Historically, uh, writing, uh, we're used to writing in its uh, alphabetic form or in the form where it denotes the spoken word or the spoken thought. Um, but of course, we know also that historically writing has taken other forms. Uh, so, for example, uh, there were uh, knots and notches uh, on bits of bone or wood. There were, um, let's say, quipus, uh, which were used uh, by ancient civilizations to um, uh, account uh, for their buying and selling. Uh, they would use basically uh, pieces of knotted string that were colored and would be read with practiced motions of the hand, much as Braille is today. So that uh, writing um, hasn't always been about representing the spoken word. Uh, it's uh, represented other things too. And in fact, if you think about other forms of writing like seismography or knitting patterns uh, or circuit diagrams, there's all sorts of forms of writing, uh, musical notation, which don't have to do with representing the spoken word. 
And that's quite important for us today because we are in a situation where we have a, a virtual written constitution. Uh, but that constitution, which is global, um, has not come about through any um, overt political act or through any mass consent. Um, it's a, a digital constitution composed of zeros and ones. And uh, essentially, I, I think there's a, a good phrase by the writer Cathy O'Neill that all code is uh, an automated human opinion. Um, in other words, we're, you know, we're living through um, and living with the consequences of the automation of uh, somebody's opinions about what uh, social life should be like. In other words, a relatively small group of uh, tech designers in Northern California, mostly affluent white men, um, sort of designed a social life for us, and it became very popular. Um, and I suppose the question is then, if that is the machinery that we've got, um, how can we make it so that the something uh, something more than that narrow set of purposes is automated? Nothing wrong with automation, nothing wrong with um uh, using technology to design and augment social life. But if you've got it shaped by the values uh, of, let us say, universal celebrity, hierarchy, competition, status seeking, and so on, which is the case that was made by Alice Marwick, uh, a former Microsoft employee and somebody who did a PhD research on this uh, subject. Um, if that's the case, then we might want to think about well, what other ways could we design it? Um, and how might we uh, achieve uh, the collective political control over that? Because clearly, this is something that potentially is much more powerful than any uh, democratic system in the world. Indeed, it being much faster, it being something of a cultural accelerator, it might enable certain political forces to outflank and outmaneuver our uh, increasingly uh, clunky and antiquated democratic systems. So we have to give this some serious thought. Um, so that's the kind of machinery that I'm talking about. Um, and I suppose uh, the, if I was to put it in a phrase, I would say it's not, it's not the machinery of, um, let's say, wires and pipes and, uh, you know, uh, screens and so on. The machinery that I'm talking about is one composed largely of writers and writing. This is very much a book about writing and its history and the way in which it's being used to reshape the world we live in today. And you talk about the Twittering machine as really being part of a social industry because all of this type of writing is being monetized, right, by these by tech giants. And then you also talk about... Um, you kind of mentioned how social industry has created a panopticon effect and perhaps a much more dangerous one than than what Jeremy Bentham, his original kind of thesis. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that and how this fits into the industry and that kind of post-democracy and the kind of platform capitalism? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, I took the phrase "the culture industry." Um, it's it's a riff on Adorno's. I'm oh, sorry, uh, the social industry is a riff on Adorno's notion of the culture industry. Um, and according to him, uh, if you think about Hollywood mass production um, and television, and you know mass culture in general. Uh, he argued that what tended to happen was that uh, in the pursuit of um, a profitable commodity, they tended to produce the same old stereotyped stories over and over again, and the same old stereotyped thinking, um, and that it tends to be quite conservative in its effects um, in terms of you know how one could come to perceive um, the possible varieties of human life. Um, I argue that social industry being shaped not uh, by an ideological message per se, but by uh, algorithms and protocols which are in the reality shaping business, which uh, give us a certain range of things uh, that we can do with the tools, but which are necessarily in themselves quite restrictive uh, in that sense, um, that it has programmed our social lives far more efficiently than the culture industry. Um, uh, you know, there was always a fairly decent argument that Adorno overstated um, the extent to which even the Hollywood uh, production line 
was uh, monotonously the same um, and uniform. Um, well, I think when you have a system whereby uh, the algorithms essentially um, are written the same for everyone, um, they can adjust, of course, uh, to everyone's unique circumstances uh, and so on. That's part of their power. Um, but nonetheless, we all live with a similar set of constraints. So, for example, if you want to uh, uh, have, have a social life on Twitter or on Instagram or one of these platforms, you know that there's a number of uh, protocols that you have to adhere to. One, uh, you have to have a, a profile image of some sort. Uh, you have to have a, a self-description. Um, and then there's certain types of content that you can share, a uh, certain length of uh, uh, tweet, in the case of Twitter, and certain types of photos with certain range of filters on Instagram. And then beyond that, there are the conditions for interacting. You can share, uh, you can uh, retweet, you can like. Likes are very important. Uh, the innovation of the like button which uh, goes back a long way, but which was, uh, I think, generalized after Facebook had such tremendous success with it, um, turns out to be, for some reason, very addictive. So um, if you think about what that entails, a sort of um, a collective like hunt that we're all engaged in, wherein we have created this online icon of ourselves, um, a little celebrity version of ourselves that is um, competing for attention and status and influence. Um, well, that is very different from social life as we used to know it. Um, you know, it's, um, it's one in which people are very strongly incentivized to have a very atomized uh, view of themselves and a very entrepreneurial view of themselves um, in which they are in this big playground playing for, um, uh, you know, deploying whatever forms of capital they may have, cognitive, uh, erotic, uh, whatever it may be, in order to yield the uh, capital of social attention and popularity and approval. And for some people that turns into money. It turns, it, it can be monetized. Um, so uh, that's that's a very fragile um, and constantly sh shifting uh, ecology of attention and celebrity and status, um, quite unlike um, uh, traditional forms of socialization. Um, and one might ask, well, what incentive do we have to participate in this? Well, one answer that the, uh, you know, the former bosses of the social industry often give whenever they're penitent and they go on these documentaries to tell, to explain how they got it wrong, uh, is addiction. You know, they, they developed a system that made us addicted. Well, that's arguable, uh, and I'll come back to that. But I think it's also important to say that according to numerous indices uh, and a lot of data, there has actually been a decline uh, in sociality over recent decades. In other words, people are going out less, uh, people are dating less, um, there's less uh, sexual relationships, less romantic relationships. Um, people are becoming more and more isolated. And that seems to have been uh, coterminous with the rise in depression and related affects. So it suggests to me that perhaps what has taken place here is that uh, at this moment of crisis, um, when our real life, uh, as it were, relationships are somehow disappointing to us, somehow not working, um, the network steps in and offers this uh, highly modified and uh, turns out addictive form of socialization um, in its place. And it seems to be a remedy for loneliness and it seems to be a remedy for depression, except that quite a lot of studies have suggested that increased screen time on these platforms is correlated to more depression and more self-harm and more suicidal ideation and even suicidal behavior, um, which raises the question of whether, like so many um, pharmaceutical cures, uh, it actually potentiates and worsens the disease. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about how um, it's really, you know, like the like button was developed to be an intermittent reward system 
So if you were always getting the reward psychologically, there would be less reason to check your apps, to engage with the platforms. And so by having this intermittent reward, it means that like, it's really, you know, it's an attention industry, right? They, they're monetizing, they want our attention. Um, So I think it's, it's really fascinating that as you mentioned in the book, where you talk about that, it's not necessarily driving addiction because, well, what is addiction? We have to kind of look at that and, and how is this different from, you know, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction, but also that it's, it's really purporting this idea that it's the remedy to the addiction. So it's like, we really are in this machine, this kind of almost like this kind of feet, this horrendous feedback loop. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about this, um, stuff about intermittent rewards, I think there's something to it, but, um, it does complicate, uh, the, the picture of addiction that we've been given because, uh, the traditional idea is that, um, or at least the, the idea that's been with us for a few decades, is, has been that uh, addiction uh, triggers uh, a dopamine boost. You know, like whenever you take the drug, or in this case, whenever you check your notifications, you get a little buzz um, of dopamine, and that changes the structure and chemistry of your brain. And by repeated activation, um, you condition yourself uh, to become dependent on that uh, that dopamine buzz. Well, of course, uh, neuroscientists today will tell us actually dopamine doesn't really have to do with giving you a, a buzz or a high of any kind. Um, what it rather has to do with is uh, the pathways of wanting, of appetite, uh, which is interesting in itself. But now if you throw in uh, the idea that um, that we're more addicted to something that varies the rewards, that intermittently gives us not just rewards, but actually punishment. I think Jaron Lanier calls it uh, carrot and shtick. Um, well, you know, periodically you get uh, backlash, you get people attacking you, uh, calling you a scumbag or whatever it happens to be because you've said something uh, that they didn't like. Uh, and so you're getting quote tweeted everywhere and, and, and lambasted and whatever it happens to be. Um, and that kind of punishment somehow is actually more compulsive. And you've seen it, uh, you know, we, we've all seen it over and over again, like particularly when celebrities have an online meltdown and they can't stop themselves from engaging with the people who are attacking them, with the people who are claiming to be their disappointed, disappointed fans um, uh, and who are, you know, just often, uh, you know, resorting to downright trashing and bullying, um, that somehow is more addictive. And to me, uh, that suggests that really uh, what we've known for a long time about addictions, uh, you know, whether it's alcohol or smoking or heroin addiction or something like that, is there's an element of uh, what Freud would call the death drive. Now, I know that's a controversial concept, but the basic idea isn't that unfamiliar. The idea that you're consuming something that you know uh, will uh, slowly administer little doses of death to you. And the idea that perhaps when you look at the cigarette package and it says, this is going to kill you, it's going to give you cancer, look at this awful picture of a cancerous tongue, this is going to kill you, that that somehow is part of the marketing. That somehow is part of the allure. Um, And so, of course, uh, you know, uh, there, there's another aspect to this, of course, which is addiction historically, uh, in its etymological sense, had something to do with devotion uh, and love. And perhaps there's uh, an idea here that uh, addiction is a misplaced form of love, precisely because uh, the relationships in our lives uh, are uh, giving us less satisfaction, are somehow disappointing to us, that uh, we have turned to these devices um, or to these uh, various uh, addictive remedies um, as a kind of prop or a substitute. So, um, in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that there are a few coordinates that we can use for um, analyzing what an addiction is that will get us out of this bind uh, according to which addiction always has to do with pleasure and always has to do with a simple biochemical interaction, um, which is quite reductive and ultimately doesn't explain anything. It's a bit like if you were to try to explain love by talking about its biochemical signature. Of necessity, all of our experience has some sort of biochemical signature. It has some sort of brain chemistry. Um, 
But that doesn't really explain anything to us. If somebody were to tell you um, being in love is the equivalent of eating lots of chocolate, which I think actually did appear on uh, an episode of House uh, at one stage, um, you would think, well, maybe that's true, but it doesn't really explain the experience to me. It doesn't tell me anything about the meaning of it. And we are meaning-making creatures. So if we want to talk about what the social industry is doing in our lives, we have to question what is the meaning uh, that it is giving to us. Uh, Or perhaps, just as importantly, given that perhaps there's an element of escape in the fact that we um, log on and whip out our phones whenever we're in company, um, perhaps uh, uh, it's doing something else. It's deleting a certain kind of meaning for us, something that we can't tolerate, something that we don't want to give attention to. Um, I think that would be um, a more useful way of exploring questions of addiction than to reduce it uh, to its most narrow uh, chemical basis, which ultimately leads us to becoming addicted, as I think you pointed out, uh, to these uh, sort of pseudo remedies uh these pills that they uh, dish out to us um which uh, tend to be um mostly ineffectual at dealing with the problem but can become uh placebo like in 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 their triggering of addiction and i think it's um i think it's really interesting and and important that you, the point that you make about addiction um because addiction is about attention so you talk about obviously that the social industry those kind of platforms that's that, you know, they're, they're waging this constant battle. Um, as you say in the book, uh, to manipulate (laughs) for our attention, right? They're, they're just vying for our attention, um, all the time in real time. And it does move beyond just this idea that it's a dopamine hit that we're searching for the high because even more dangerous than that, it's actually creating an appetite and creating an appetite. How do you, and it's never really satisfying that that hunger isn't really ever satisfied when we go and check our social media apps or when we engage with the, the Twittering machine, even if it's to our destruction. So I think, I think that's a, that's a really important point to make and to think about that. Not only are we constrained, we don't have this idea of, of free will in these platforms because we have to, our, our behavior is dictated by whatever the platform allows us to do within, you know, the, uh, the, the technological apparatus and then the addiction being this attention and this appetite is, it really is a horror story. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we talk about free will. It seems to me this is the reason why um, I alighted on the discourse of psychoanalysis, because as soon as you introduce the unconscious, you can bring free will back in, um, in a, in a certain way. Uh, it may not be free will in the sort of classical liberal sense, but it does offer us a certain kind of freedom because the behaviorist um, perspective, which uh, underlies a lot of the social industry's views on how they make their technology work on us, um, you know, the, the, the idea that essentially these are technologies which are teaching us to behave in certain ways um, and modifying us um, based upon stimulus response. Well, if you assume that there's a part of us that never learns anything, that there's a part of us that no matter how um, how bad the feedback is, um, uh, and how no matter how irrational our behaviour might be, we are committed to our let's say our symptom. We're committed to that little knot, that part of ourselves that just doesn't um, yield to being educated, but which is in fact the whole reason why we want to learn anything in the first place, insofar as we do want to learn anything. Um, If we bring that back into the picture, then we can say, well, people are not just programmable. And after all, we can always say, look, um, yes, uh, there's a a tyranny of ends, uh, or sorry, a tyranny of means when it comes to uh, the social industry. There's a limited range of things that you can do and the limited range of ways in which you can do them. Um, but nobody forces us to actually sign up. Um, for some reason, uh, it was popular. So it answered to some real demand, some real need. And once we can untangle what that need is, we can perhaps begin to address it in more constructive and productive ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, 
the, the framework with which they view the world, the Silicon Valley intellectuals and uh, their various entrepreneurs and capitalists and so on, they view the world in a, in a rather mechanistic way. And they don't really believe that we, uh, as users, have the capacity to exercise free will, to articulate a, uh, uh, even a consumer will, let alone a democratic will. Um, and we see this again and again. So, for example, uh, if you were to tell one of the bosses of these uh, platforms that uh, the people don't like this particular feature, well, they will say it doesn't really matter what they say about this. What matters is what the data shows us. If we run a beta test and people use it, then they're wrong. They're wrong to think they don't want it. Evidently, they do. Now, that can lead you in all sorts of um, problematic directions. For example, if you're on uh, Twitter or Facebook and you see a lot of racist, sexist, homophobic abuse, and some of it's directed at you, and uh, you know for various reasons you can't resist the urge to fight back to type relentlessly, um, uh, to, you know, denounce this, to argue with these people and so on. And the worse it gets, the more you're drawn in. Well, the data would suggest uh, that you love this, that you like this content. And so the algorithms logically will show you more of it. That doesn't necessarily tell us that uh, we really, really, really deep down in some sense actually want this. Um, it just tells us that we. Um, are capable of being goaded into responding in that way. So we do need to liberate ourselves from the picture of the world given by the platform giants. Um, and that's that's a, a process as much of self-inquiry as it is of political inquiry. And um, do you think that the tech giants um, will ever care um, or listen to perhaps maybe humanize their technology? Is that even possible at this point in time? Um, or have they just released a, you know, kind of a, of a monster that's beyond their control and they're just going to use the data to um, continue monetizing behavior, even if it's like you just mentioned against what users actually want, because data shows that it is, even if they're engaging with it in a negative sense. What are your thoughts on that? The Twittering machine, as I've described it, is a snapshot of a technology that is constantly evolving. So it will look very different, I would guess, in about five years' time. I think uh, it's probably fair to say that what we're going to see is experimentation in new ways of getting profit. So we've seen, for example, Facebook um, and other platforms look to, for example, uh, offering their own forms of currency or their own forms of financial service. So we can see them uh, evolving in various directions in the coming years. I think uh, it's pr quite probable that the platforms will have reached uh, a plateau uh, at this point in terms of uh, their popular uh, involvement, in terms of the number of people who will sign up to them. Uh, but we should also recognize that they have a certain inbuilt flexibility. So Facebook is not just one kind of uh, service, for example. It offers a whole range of different experiences on one platform. You can go on and play games. Uh, you can go on and uh, engage in chat. You can go on and um, share photographs. You can go on and watch videos of recent television shows. Uh, you can participate in fan groups. There's a whole range of um, behaviors um, and forms of social interaction that you can engage in. Um, so I would expect it to continue to evolve in that direction. Uh, they may offer forms of gambling. In fact, I think some platforms do. Um, they may uh, sort of offer forms of uh, virtual reality experience because that's increasingly where the next big uh, technological step is going to come. And as Jaron Lanier warns us, when that comes, they're going to need a lot more data about us. They're going to, I mean, because at present, they can survey us through our phones. Uh, they can figure out where we are and, you know, roughly um, how long we've watched uh, a particular video and, uh, you know, whether we scrolled and for how long we scrolled and whether we clicked through and so on. 
so they can build up quite a detailed picture of our behavior. And of course, uh, you know, the uh, artificial intelligence algorithms are very good at making connections that uh, human intelligence would take forever to make um, and which uh, allow them to manipulate us in various ways. Well, if you add uh, the additional data that virtual reality experience would require, which would be data about uh, our body comportment, data about, uh, it could include data about our heart rate, it could include data about our health, it could include any number of things to maximize the experience of being in virtual reality. That's going to be much, much more valuable data, I would suggest. Now, the complicating thing here, as I see it, is that uh, the profit that they're getting from this is, you know, largely it's uh, what you would call rent. It's extracted from, uh, uh, you know, other corporations who are selling um, or buying advertising uh, space from them based on uh, their superior use of data. In other words, uh, because of their uh, incredible data, they can offer very, very accurate advertising, very, very precise audience targeting, and they can target an ad to you at just the right moment. So, for example, they know that if you just viewed a cat video, um, you're more likely to buy the shoes, something like that. They don't necessarily know why. Um, all they can say is that somehow uh, the two are related to one another. It's conditioned. So... Um, I think that the danger is that this is going to become um, a power that is almost as, well, let's say it's not quite a state, but it's not quite just a business either. Um, it seems to combine some of the powers of states in terms of the fact that they constitute themselves almost as political communities. Um, they also combine that with the market control of big business empires and to some extent, the ideological control of mass media. And when I say ideological control, it's different from when you had these Cold War print giants, uh, you know, like Axel Springer or Rupert Murdoch, um, who would broadcast their views uh, to mass audiences who would pay money each day to read them. Um, that's actually quite a crude uh, mechanism of ideological control because people can decide to disagree with it. But here we've got uh, mechanisms that don't declare any ideological intent. In fact, they're quite overt in saying um, that they don't care what uh, your politics or your ideology are. Um, what they care about is controlling the conditions under which you uh, engage in uh, these forms of ideological or political thinking. So, for example, um, you might remember a few years ago, Mark Zuckerberg got into trouble for saying that uh, he thought it was perfectly fine for there to be Holocaust denial on his platform, um, that that was a perfectly reasonable use of free speech, um, provided that, uh, you know, some users found that stuff interesting and useful. Now, he had to backtrack but ultimately, that very nihilistic uh, relationship to ideology um, and ideological power tells us that they found something um, a bit more subtle um, than simply um, trying to control people's opinions. If you can shape the conditions under which people reach their opinions, then you've got something that's uh, more insidious and far more difficult to challenge. So I, at present they don't have necessarily any incentive to change, except in as much as they're under pressure from various governments around the world to collaborate with them in one way or another. So uh, obviously, it's pretty well known that Facebook has arrangements with various governments, for example, the Turkish government or the Israeli government, to um, remove content that they find uh, hostile. Uh, it's also uh, got a, a series of working relationships with various uh, parts of the American state. So, for example, they will share certain data with the U.S. police or with the national security apparatus. Um, and I think that they're under pressure from Congress and so on to um, moderate um, the way in which uh, content appears on their sites. Hence, we've seen a number of recent controversies, for example, over uh, Twitter's censorship of uh, a story about Hunter Biden that was put out by the New York Post uh, or their decision to post warnings uh, to Donald Trump's tweets uh, and so on. Um, 
it's kind of interesting where that leads us to because in a way the social industry can't win um and i don't have any sympathy for them in this but it is true that uh, whatever they do as long as they're committed to their existing revenue model um there's nothing they can really do to solve the problem because either they can continue to make money out of the far right and out of disinformation and conspiracy theories and all of this stuff. And they did that very happily for a number of years. And to a large extent, they still do so. Um, and, you know, it, it makes up a lot of their um, revenue streams. I, I believe um, a few years ago, there was a study which suggested that uh, Trump alone made up probably about a fifth of Twitter's total value because of the incredible storms of attention uh, that he drew to the platform. Um, certainly, if you look at uh, the figures for uh, various far-right micro-celebrities and for um, far-right YouTube super chats and you know Holocaust denial material, they do very well out of this industry, but the industry does very well out of them as well. So it's um, a mutual relationship. So that's one way in which they can go. They can prioritize uh, their traditional profit-making model. Another way in which they can go um, is to... Um, defer to what they assume the political center of gravity is. And in this case, I suppose uh, that would mean deferring to uh, traditional Washington, um, uh, which would um, be in favor of uh, shutting down certain what they would call disinformation uh, and so on. And the problem there is, of course, you end up with this unavailing oscillation between so-called free speech, which it isn't because um, obviously you're not a citizen on these platforms. You don't have any democratic rights. Community standards are not devised for you or by you. They're devised to maximize the profits of the platform or censorship, which uh, is you know, always ongoing on the platforms anyway, because they always have to control in some way or other what goes on on their platforms so that they can minimize the risk that they're exposed to as businesses. Um, and we don't really get to the root of the problem, which is it's not that they uh, censor or they allow free speech. It's that they are the ones in command. It's that they get to control it. It's that there's no regulatory or democratic oversight. Now, if you start to pose the question that way, you can see why they've engaged in such a, a messy um, and incoherent series of zigzags over the question of whether they're in favor of free speech or whether they are in favor of um, sort of quality control and moderating content. Um, it's because ultimately their priority is to maintain their monopoly on content produced on their platforms because it's economically extremely valuable to them and they cannot tolerate that being moderated. Therefore, I suggest um, we need to figure out ways of mobilizing and leveraging collective democratic pressure on these institutions. Um, and possibly, I mean, there's a number of ways in which you could go about this, but possibly one thing we could think about is if we can regulate them, great. That's a start. It's not the end of the game, but it's a start. But it might be possible to launch platforms that are not controlled by a small handful of uh, silicon businessmen um, for their own purposes. It might be possible, for example, in the UK, we've got the BBC, which in principle is a public service broadcaster for all the criticisms of it. It would be possible for them to launch a public service platform. Uh, which didn't collect our data, which wasn't trying to get us addicted, and uh, which mainly just offered the useful aspects of these platforms to us. Um, and I think that uh, we might look back on the experience of, for example, Minitel in France, which was the internet before the internet. You know, it was essentially, uh, again, a public sector uh, institution, had many of the same features of uh, the internet as we know it, um, probably wasn't as pathological in terms of producing trolls and, you know, um, uh, online bullying and uh, the, the various forms of uh, far-right politicization that we've seen and the conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. But um, it was something that was, uh, it couldn't be globalized in the end because uh, the, of the way the system worked. It wasn't compatible with the way other countries were developing their uh, equivalents. Uh, the World Wide Web was uh, much more uh, readily uh, globalizable, but it was popular enough and it was useful enough 
that it, uh, you know, was um, used by, I think, six million French people. And it was uh, available, the terminal uh, that would get you access to Minitel was available free of charge from your local authority. All you would have to pay for is your usage. Um, and I wonder if we might look at uh, models like that and see if we can learn any lessons from them, because um, we seem to have arrived at the idea, which would have been quite alien to some of the uh, original pioneers of uh, what became the Internet, that it has to be a giant mall and that it has to be everything has to be for somebody to make a profit. Um, well, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. And maybe there are ways in which we can exert a degree of democratic control on this technology. Um, but we're not going to get there unless we start to pro- problematize our relationship to the technology as it exists. And um, you mentioned trolls, which is certainly one of the, um, a, you know, kind of a, a, a toxic um, issue with uh, with some of these platforms. Um, and you have um, you dedicated chapter four um to talking about how we are all trolls. Um, so can you expand on what you mean, how everyone's a troll and this idea that trolling it in and of itself is not actually a new concept? Sure. I mean, I think there is something new about it, but I think it's rooted in quite ordinary human behavior. I mean, we're all capable of engaging in that kind of sadistic um uh, way of winding other people up and enjoying um momentarily at least uh their bafflement or their outrage or their confusion or whatever it happens to be i remember uh, in the united kingdom there used to be programs based upon uh pranking members of the public and watching them get terribly wound up um and then you know you would let them in on the joke at the end and they would have a bit of a laugh well Obviously, most of the time, in order, uh, you know, for conversation to go on, um, you have to let the person in on the joke, and you have to let them see that uh, it's uh, there. The intention is not to permanently humiliate them or scar them for life. Internet trolls are kind of interesting in that they have a stylized commitment to um, limitless sadism. Um, and to sadism without any real justification or cause. The only justification for this kind of sadism is that ultimately you showed a weakness. Uh, How did you show a weakness? Well, you take something seriously. You care about something. And if you care about something, you can be trolled about it. And a good troll will figure out the ways in which you feel um, unconsciously, say, ambivalent towards your subject or the ways in which you harbor doubts about uh, your convictions. Uh, and they will exploit that and leverage it and use it to wind you up, uh, for example. Um, but, of course, there's uh, other forms of trolling um, which uh, have got a lot of attention, which are uh, more macabre. Uh, there's what's called RIP trolling. Um, and this involves, of course, finding the families of people whose uh, loved ones have recently died, usually young people. Um, and quite often young girls or women, um, and subjecting them to a barrage of offensive jokes. Um, uh, so, for example, there was a, 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 a guy called, uh, I think, Matthew Henderson, who died. He, he committed suicide. He was 12 years old. Um, and they discovered that, the trolls discovered that before he died, he had uh, lost his iPod. And so they engaged in a form of trolling, which implied that this this kid was just, um, you know, it was first world problems. This kid was, um, uh, you know, killing himself over his iPod and things like that. Um, and uh, obviously this outraged the family um, and uh, because these trolls were turning up on a MySpace page that was devoted to this boy. Um, by family members, and they were uh, engaging in this uh, obscene um, attack. And the more angry the family got, the funnier it was. Now, I think we can all say that, uh, you know, most of us would say we would never do anything like that. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't see why they found it funny, Um, why they enjoyed toying with their victims in the way that a cat might toy with a mouse. uh, because, you know, even if we wouldn't do anything as obscene as that, uh, we've all uh, engaged in forms of sadism um, and forms of, uh, you know, 
informal forms of trolling. And uh, I, I think it's um, certainly true that uh, the trolling uh, subculture uh, engaged in some campaigns that, um, you know, in, in retrospect, they seemed pretty harmless and actually quite funny. You know, the trolling of the Church of Scientology, for example. Um, so sometimes, it, you know, we, we can engage in this pathologization of trolling as if it's uh, something that none of us have ever engaged in. And that's not very productive. And it doesn't help us to explain how it was that this very stylized subculture rooted in uh, a kind of cultural nihilism and generalized sadism um, became uh, part of, uh, in large part, a broader right wing subculture. Um, you know, committed to uh, ironizing and thus rendering more acceptable neo-Nazi ideology, anti-Semitic ideology, uh, homophobic ideology, and so on. How this uh, gross-out humor, um, how this nihilism became a, a, a form of covert attachment to um, uh, pretty outrageous ideas. Um, so I think... We also can recognize the other side of this, and we have to find a way of recognizing ourselves in this. Um, the other side of this is the um, the vigilantes, the witch hunters, the people who um, like to uh, scold on the internet, the people who like to find somebody who's done something bad or said something bad and like to round up the mob, as it were, and uh, generate uh, tweet, storm, tweet storms, uh, you know, attacking them and denouncing them for the bad thing that they said. And let's say uh, that, uh, you know, what they said was genuinely unacceptable, racist or homophobic. It doesn't necessarily follow that the best way to deal with that is to organize these online uh, storms. Uh, in fact, by and large, what we're talking about here is a form of group punishment rather than political education, let's say. Um, and group punishment generally doesn't work to dissuade people of their views. In fact, it probably makes them more entrenched. So we have this uh, dynamic, um, a dialectic between, on the one hand, the trolls who claim not to care about anything, but it turns out have some obscure moral commitments which can lead them un under certain circumstances to right-wing politicization. And these sort of vigilantes and witch hunters who claim that they do have these moral commitments, but it turns out that they're a little bit less moral and upright than, than they think they are. Um, and I think that um, on the internet, one of the things that's happened is that partly because of uh, online anonymity or the possibility of anonymity, and partly because of this culture, as I described it earlier, of sort of universal competition, um, and uh, the striving for status and attention and celebrity within this constantly evolving hierarchy, that we have this incentive both to uh, paranoia, in which we always view ourselves as, as the misunderstood victims, um, always under attack unfairly, um, always uh, being denied something, um, never having as much attention and celebrity as other people do, and it's unfair and all the rest of it. Um, and on the other hand, uh, you know, we have this incentive to turn on others um, if it will boost our status and profile on the turn of a dime. In other words, people who were, you know, scant moments ago, our closest allies on these mediums, on these platforms, uh, if they apparently say or do something that we can say is um, unacceptable, then we can join the mob. Um, so that we have the incentive to... Um, be both paranoid and sadistic. Um, and I think that that's the context in which uh, we've got this sort of expanding spiral of trolling and vigilantism, um, leading us to the point where you've got people who, I think basically the trolling, the basic trolling subjectivity today is to engage in performatively outrageous acts of racism and sexism and homophobia um, and say, ah, oh, are the libs triggered? Are the libs uh, little snowflakes who are triggered? Ah, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, your feelings don't constitute an argument. So that's the sort of trolling subjectivity as it's as it's moved to the right. And then on the other hand, you've got this 
um, group of people who are nominally committed to um, very conscientious views. They're against sexism, they're against racism and so on. But it turns out that they love to don the jackboots and go uh, hunting for people who've said or done something wrong and, you know, engage in ritual humiliation. Uh, and I think that that um, is a very destructive um, play, uh, place to go. And the end result, I think, I, I say in the book that the this uh, system has a fascist potential in it. I say fascist potential because, you know, it's it's a speculation. I don't want to, I don't want to commit myself to such a strong thesis, um, you know, without knowing more. But there is a potential there in this tendency towards in-group conformity, in this uh, temptation to engage in uh, mutual sadism, uh, in this universal competitiveness, um, and in the, I guess, the, 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 the sort of commitment to being on the right side of uh, any mob that happens to form, um, that can lead us to, uh, I think, a, a quite dark um, and... Uh, brutal um, and sadistic uh, and actually death-driven, if I may put it like that, way of viewing our social lives. Um, And the interesting thing about all this is that it's somehow come about through a a major alteration in the system of writing. Somehow we've written ourselves into this state of affairs. It turns out that writing is incredibly important for human civilization and where it goes. And so we might want to think about, well, what else could we write ourselves into? What would a utopia of writing look like? I mean, I have to say that, you, I mean, you really, um, I really enjoyed um, reading your book. I thought it, it was, you know, as an academic, I really even appreciated, um, as you kind of mentioned in your um, in your author's note, that it's, you didn't really want to bog it down with being an academic work. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, this is definitely something that I will share with my students um, who I think will will enjoy to have um, just kind of this well-rounded argument about what it really means to be part of this social industry, to be part of um, this Twittering machine and really kind of thinking about ways that possibly we can um, perhaps move past the post-democracy, if that even makes sense, if that's even possible um, from from this kind of perspective, right? So. Yeah. So I definitely, I definitely appreciate um, the book. I, I really, um, I really enjoyed uh, reading this. It'll, it'll, it'll come up in my in my teaching, um, possibly even my my scholarship. So, well, thank so you. thank I, you. I, yeah. Um, I'm very glad. Yeah. Um, so um, as we wrap up, uh, I'm, I'm sure our, our listeners uh, may be curious to know uh, if there's anything that you are currently working on that you're willing to to share with us. What well, your next project might be. Uh, I've mostly been researching the history of um, uh, what you might call um, right-wing nationalism. I prefer to call it disaster nationalism because um, we have seen in recent years uh, the rise of various movements which, uh, for some reason, are absolutely transfixed by um, uh, and motivated by the image of annihilation. And you see this in Trump's rhetoric quite a lot. Um, and certainly I've seen it in uh, the uh, parts of the British right, Bolsonaro and uh, the Hungarian right and Modi and so on. The image of annihilation, of disaster, usually, you know, the idea is uh, we're being invaded by migrants or, um, you know, we're um, communism is taking over. We've seen a lot of that recently. You know, even Joe Biden is supposed to be a Chinese style communist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think this idea that uh, you can have a political movement that is transfixed by, animated by, and actually infatuated with the image of disaster, of annihilation, it's not that unfamiliar, actually. I think, um, really, um, this is one of the elements of fascism. Um, you know, the, this is one of the ways in which I would use the concept of the death drive. Um, but It's also, I think, uh, something that you find historically in the origins of nationalism, uh, in that it's it's always positioned as a form of counter-apocalyptic politics. 
But at the same time, it's uh, staged as though it were itself the apocalypse. And you see this with, um, uh, I guess, what you would call end times nationalism. You know, the um, the theory that um, at some stage, whether it's the QAnon theory or the religious right, the theory that uh, at some stage there's going to be this big showdown and the evildoers, whether it's Hollywood liberals or a so-called satanic uh, pedophile elite, whatever it happens to be, they're going to be cleansed from the face of the earth. And the image is that there's going to be a lot of violence and a lot of struggle. And for some reason, they love this. Um, and if you go back and, and look at the history of um, uh, sort of far-right ideology, you you find this quite frequently, a contempt for ideas of what uh, Mussolini called bourgeois happiness um, and uh, the idea that real fulfillment, real satisfaction lies in um, struggle, um, the encounter with death, uh, usually in a military frontier. Um, and I think that um, that idea is, what in, what is interesting to me is the extent to which that idea is rooted in ordinary experience. In other words, it's not just something a bunch of uh, bad guys on uh, the far right of the political spectrum are doing. It's something that can potentially be appealing to many, many people in quite ordinary ways and spans the political spectrum. It just so happens that it uh, crystallizes around a form of far right politics, but it needn't do so. Um, and uh, I think maybe some sort of investigation of that. And I guess uh, this is probably going to be called disaster nationalism. Fascinating. Well, keep me posted on that. And uh, if you end up writing about it, which I'm sure you will, um, you can come back on the show um, and talk about it. Um, thanks again, um, uh, Richard, for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners. Um, until next time, cheers. Cheers.